Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscript.study slash biblical world. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. We have a very special episode today. Lynn Koek is hosting Dr. Holly Beers and Dr. David De Silva to talk about writing historical fiction that's related to the Bible. So uh, this involves a lot about the world of scripture, but also how that's brought to bear in this creative medium of writing uh, historical fiction. So I think you'll enjoy this. And as always, please take the time to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this episode, and we'd appreciate that. Thanks for listening. Well, I am delighted to have a conversation today with two of my New Testament friends, um, David De Silva, who's at Ashland Seminary, and Holly Beers, who's at Westmont College, have written novels. And so right away, I am like so impressed that they are able to take their vast, extensive knowledge of the New Testament world and package it in such an entertaining way, like a page turner way. So uh, welcome to the Biblical World podcast, uh, David and Holly. It's so great to uh, see you today. Thank you so much, Lynn. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. Yeah, well, these are these are historical novels. Uh, Holly, you wrote A Week in the Life of a Greco-Roman Woman, and David, you wrote A Week in the Life of Ephesus. Uh, this this is a series done by InterVarsity Press. And again, I just have to commend you. The I had to keep reading it. Like I had to find out, wait, what's going to happen to these, <laughs> to these characters that you, uh, create so vividly? Um, but it's a very different genre from the academic work that you typically do. Um, so much of your work, David, has been in the intertestamental period, has worked with the Apocrypha. You do a lot with the history of Judea. You have something, uh, in the works, Judea under Greek and Roman rule coming out uh, with Oxford, right? And then I heard you doing your second edition of the Honor, Patronage, Kinship, and Purity book that uh, I have used, hopefully not directly plagiarized, but used extensively over, over the years. It's been fantastic. So let me ask you, what motivated you to step into this type of writing? Although I have to say, I, I learned that you have done this before in your book, Day of Atonement about the Maccabean revolt, but nevertheless, a novel. I mean, that just, that's a whole different way of doing things. It is. And it's a whole lot more fun. Is it? Than, okay. Tell uh, me why. You know, writing a commentary <laughs> uh, because one gets to create a world. One gets to bring the world that one has studied in an academic way for a, a long time to life and put a kind of imaginative flesh and blood uh, and routine and full scenes and menus uh, uh, together. Uh, so it, it's a much more fulsome immersion than my usual text expositional focus on the period. And Day of, Day of Atonement got me into it because the story of the Maccabean martyrs just cried to be told 
Uh, and and it was only after that that I began to talk to Dan Reed at the time at IVP about doing something similar that would maybe bring the world of Revelation to life a bit more fully. Yes, and that that's the time period for your week in uh, in Ephesus. And Holly, you you chose the time a, a week in the life of a Greco-Roman woman is also placed in Ephesus, but it's during the time of Paul. And and a lot of your work, Holly, has been in Luke Acts or in the Gospels and looking at um, no Acts. I mean, tells a story, but this is a a novel that you um, that you've written so beautifully. What what tipped the scales for you to to go ahead and do this novel? Well, honestly, I wanted to try writing in a different genre. And the heart of that for me was to write something that my mom could read. So my mom's always loved the Bible, both my parents, but my mom and I have had so many conversations over the years about the Bible, especially as I've advanced in my own education and scholarship. And I've never been able to write something up to this point that she could read and access. So I really had her as my target audience in my mind when I was writing this. And I've read probably thousands of novels in my life. That's my main hobby. So I I had wanted to try to write something that I enjoy so much on my own in my free time reading. And it was slow going at first, I would say, but it picked up as I got used to writing in the genre. Did you have the story kind of all in your head? I understand J.K. Rowling had, you know, all of Harry Potter in her head before she put it on page. Did you have the story in your head or did it kind of develop? Well, I had asked Dan Reed at IVP because he was also my main contact at first. I had asked if it'd be okay if I used part of the Book of Acts as my narrative framework. So when he approved that, then I had a sense of where I wanted to go. But some of the other foci, the, the emphasis on childbirth, for example, and pregnancy, I knew that I wanted that to be a major theme too. And bookending that made sense to me from a pretty early stage, I think. I, I said to myself, I think this is how I want to open and then close my yeah. book, yes. Mm -hmm. Well, and and uh, absolutely, your book starts with a very powerful scene. Go ahead and, and describe that and tell me why you wanted to start your book in such an emotional place. Oh, uh, well, I had been doing some research, and actually your work, Lynn, was part of this, on the lives of women in the ancient world. And I had been so struck by how dangerous it would have been to be a woman, just generally speaking, but to have babies especially would have been such a dangerous kind of activity that most women would have had to encounter because most women would have gotten married and had children if, you know, if everything worked out. So that was part of it. And then I had my, I've have, have given birth to three babies and I had my first baby 12 years ago. He's 12 years old now. And I had such a traumatic experience delivering him. So that, that reality brought to life for me in a whole new way. Um, the, or at least the kind of imaginative ability for me to think about my, what it might have been like in an ancient context to try to have a baby without the kinds of support that we have in places like the United States. I mean, honestly, I probably would have died giving birth to my first baby if I hadn't had a specialist who could come in at the last minute and get that baby out of me because I pushed for four and a half hours and he would not come out. He was stuck. And they just hadn't seen it coming because... According to all the statistical sorts of realities, I should have been an easy case. I was relatively young. I was healthy. I hadn't gained too much weight. All the things had lined up and people said to me, you know, oh, Holly, theoretically, we could throw you out in a field and you could deliver that baby yourself because your body knows what to do. 
And then I went, when I went in to deliver him, actually, the experience was so different and so traumatic and so damaging in terms of my kind of mental experience and my body. It was so hard on me. And I thought, after that, I thought, wow, this would have been the case for so many women in, a, in an, an ancient Mediterranean context. And I wonder if I could somehow bring this to life for readers today so that they could imagine their way into a, into a woman's experience in the Bible. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I, and I think not just your female characters, but your male characters who are uh, terrified that their wife or their and, and their infant uh, might die. I mean, just incredible anxiety over things that, like you say, often today we take for granted, even though we, you know, we shouldn't. Um, David, I was struck as well by, um, in your, in your book that takes place again in Ephesus, but, um, couple, like a generation later, closer to, um, well, is that where you put Revelation? About 89 you... is when I, I set this, not, not because of dating Revelation so much as the, the strategy of having a grand opening for an imperial cult temple. Well, yeah, you start with a bang, too. Um, and, yeah, and what... what Not um, like Holly, though. <laughs> Different kind of bang. <laughs> Different kind of bang, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, your, your, um, your main character is just right in the thick of the, the, uh, the world of pagan festivals. And... Um, in fact, one of your chapters is called uh, "In the Shadow of the Gods," um, just wrestling with what what does it mean to be a Christian and also the expectation of participating in religious festivals. I I just found that such a compelling portrayal of what believers wrestle with. Can you kind of sketch out for for our listeners, you know, your main plot? I mean, don't give away the ending, <laughs> but um, but yeah, just kind of what what this story is, and then you can connect it with Revelation. Sure. Thank you. Um, the, <clears throat> the, the book focuses on two stories, but the one you're highlighting is a, an up-and-coming elite male and his household who wants to be part of the civic life of Ephesus. He's already made his first public benefaction in the form of restoring a fountain and what have you. And, uh, also, though, as a Christian, he is increasingly understanding the tension of navigating his allegiance to one and only one God in the middle of, of a city where professional, civic, uh, simply social interactions all are bathed in the piety of the traditional gods that he now must somehow keep himself uh, uh, pure from and separate from. And one of his rivals uses this uh, to his advantage to try to throw our hero um, under the anachronistic bus. They didn't have buses back then, but uh, uh, to, to get him out of the way or at least out him as someone who has now become a, uh, a, supportive, a supporter of the subversive cult instead of one of us, one of the, the literally the good old boys who run this city and and have our forms of piety that that we support uh, and that support us. So he, he wrestles with that, and he meets a Christian who has figured out a way to have the best of both worlds. I named him Nicholas for reasons that will be obvious to anyone who reads Revelation. Uh, and the, but but the, the the book tries to show why a Nicholas is actually a sympathetic character, 
and why his sort of mission in the churches has some um, has something to say for it. this. This is a path to survival and thriving as Christians, as opposed to the path that our hero must eventually decide to take, the path to clear witness, no matter what the cost. There, I gave away the ending. And Snape is a good guy. Yeah, I, I really. I mean, that that is uh, <laughs> to give away another ending. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love Harry Potter. You know, we named our our dog that we just got a year ago. We named her Hermione. Yeah, so I'm a huge, huge Potter fan. Um, you can say just a little bit more, David, about, I think that you draw so much from the book of Revelation, uh, um, not in not in the kind of left behind series way, right? But instead, like what it would have meant to live in this city under the imperial, uh, the imperial cult, as well as the local cults. And if if you could talk a little bit about that in relation to you mentioned a gift that uh, our hero gave, um, there's a conversation about wealth as well and giving food or not to the city. Um, could you talk just a little bit? Open that piece up because I think that research that you've done and then expressed in the novel form is really uh, critical for understanding the New Testament world. Yeah. So. Um... The economy of ancient cities was at times precarious for those who weren't part of the elite. Actually, always precarious for those who weren't part of the elite. And um, one bad crop could spell disaster for hundreds of families in the, in the network of the city. So the elites know this, and, and they have to regulate their own stockpiles of food accordingly. So a question is always, are we going to take a hit on the value of our amassed uh, grain and, and what have you for the sake of the masses? Or are we going to invest our wealth in other ways that build kind of a lasting reputation? I mean, you give folks a, 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 a break on the price of your grain and they're happy for a season. You build a theater and your name is there for literally 2,000 years because we found the inscriptions. <laughs> so these sorts of, of competing values and, of course, influenced by the, the, the Judeo-Christian uh, teaching, our hero is pushing for, you know, uh, using our position and our wealth to benefit people at their point of need whenever that comes up. And to be fair, elites did make that choice on occasion, uh, or actually regularly in the ancient world, if for no other reason to avoid revolts in the streets, which happened once to Diochrysostom and Prusa. Yeah, well, the, uh, the, the fragility of life that you bring out from the economic uh, standpoint, Holly, you bring, out, you bring that out at, uh, well, and you also talk a lot about illness and death. I'm thinking of that a uh, little boy who was very sick, and uh, as the story unfolds, somebody recalls that Paul is there preaching and teaching and healing, and and then uh, there's this great line I, I found in, in your book where one of the Gentile pagans, when they learn about this God, Jesus, so they say, so this Jesus will heal to demonstrate who he is and how much power he has? And he wants our loyalty in return, but he doesn't require it to heal. That doesn't make sense. 
Can you talk just a little bit about how uh, how the ancient world would have understood healing and how new and different Jesus's healing was, and maybe also some of the uh, ways in which G- Jesus's healing or Paul's healing would have been the same? Great question. So from the research I did, it seems, and I don't want to overgeneralize too much, but also you need to generalize a bit in these conversations. It seems that the interactions between the people and the various gods or goddesses, if you're requesting healing, were primarily transactional. So you desire something from this god or goddess, you desire a healing, you need it, and you attempt to give that god or goddess what they want in return. And sometimes it's murky as to what exactly might please them, you know, what might what might convince them to heal this person who needs healing. So I illustrate some of that in the book as this as this little boy is sick and then when someone mentions and these are not followers of Jesus, this this community of people. Someone mentions that Paul's there and they've been hearing things and noticing things about how the healings work with with Paul's power source, who is this Jesus. Um, I wanted to highlight how, at least in some ways, it wouldn't have been nearly as transactional. In other words, Paul's proclamation of the kingdom of God and of Jesus as the the power behind that, the one who is working to restore, is a much more sweeping, generous kind of healing that's on offer because that's what the restoration project looks like. And someone can be included in that um, in ways that aren't so transactional, basically. It's it's much more um, invitational in that kind of sense. And that would have been striking, I think, to a lot of ancient minds. Though the idea that, you know, you might go to a specific god or goddess for healing, that would have been something that they would have understood very easily and directly. So I, tr- I wrote that little narrative in, well, because I'm a parent and when your child is sick, it's so terrifying. I mean, there are a few things more terrifying, but even in a context like ours, I've never worried that much about my child's long-term well-being. Whereas in a context like first century Ephesus, I mean, if your child is ill, the, there might be nothing you can do. It might be something as simple as a fever and you, your child might not make it. So I wanted to highlight the fear and then the relief and power that can come when healing unexpectedly occurs. And they were just so overwhelmed by it. I actually cried when I wrote that section because I thought, imagine fearing that your child's going to die. And then because of this guy named Paul and his connection to Jesus, your child survives. I mean, they jump around, they dance, they kind of play, celebrate. <laughs> That's what I would have done. That's fabulous. That's a real concern, though. I, I just uh, was reading in a book by, by Lynn Osik that one in two children would have died by the age of 10 in the first century. Those are incredible odds to try to surmount. So, And there's a, a um, kind of a, a myth, I think, that uh, at this time, well, parents really didn't get attached to their kids, right? Because there was such a high infant mortality or, uh, yeah, and, and I think I think what the evidence shows other the evidence shows otherwise that they were deeply they deeply cared they felt this they, there was just a lot of pain that they wrestled with and things that today we, there's a lot of pain that we experience today but not for these kinds of situations um we we lived in Kenya for a couple of years and that uh in the late 90s my husband uh, was part of a hospital being built for children. And that was where I think it became so clear to me 
how important Jesus as healer is. The context where we were in, in rural Kenya, uh, we, we had uh, kids who would come to the hospital who were similar in their health situation, uh, very, very sick. You, you could see the care that the parents had for the child and the, um, the attempts at times to use the village witch, witch doctor, which didn't work, and then finally coming uh, to the Christian uh, hospital. And um, yeah, so your, your story there, Holly, really brought back for me what, what is a situation today that, uh, that many families find themselves in. And, and Jesus as healer is a very powerful way of thinking, about, and biblical way of thinking about Jesus. Um, one of the other things both of you in different ways talk about uh, is the social realities, especially owners and slaves, like around meals or that kind of uh, somewhat formalized settings, meals in the in the ancient world. Could you talk a little bit about how you develop the meal uh, scenes or the interactions between uh, different social classes and what what today's uh, Bible readers may miss because we don't appreciate the the biblical world context as as we read our you know some of these stories in our own uh, our own Bibles. Well, uh, uh, my uh, interest in in a slave character is largely not involving meals, but it was inspired, in fact, by the situation envisioned in First Peter, which also addresses these provinces, so Ephesus along with everything else. And under what circumstances a slave who, who's defined as a living tool, you know, a, a breathing piece of property, might be empowered with the moral authority to say, no, I'm not going to do that, and be willing to accept the consequences of saying no, which that slave would then understand are unjust consequences and therefore be able to entrust himself to God's eventual vindication. So in, in my story, it's a slave who has committed himself to Christ, but he is the only member of the household who has come into the orbit of, of Christianity. And so he has to negotiate relationships with a, a very intolerant and vain master who is enraged that this one domestic slave would not attend the sacrifice as part of his entourage to beef up his public image by one more body. And also the witness that this slave's response to the master and to discipline provides the, uh, the wife of the family, the, the, the mistress, the domina of the household, and begins to crack open uh, avenues of witness with her. But no, no food was served in in the slave scenes. In oh, and those were those were um, very uh, poignantly poignantly portrayed. I hadn't realized you were drawing, but it makes so much sense on the first Peter uh, image. Yeah, yeah, Holly. So I have a scene where Anthea, my main character, and her son participate in a, a local gathering, a gathering of the followers of Jesus, and Paul's there, and Aquila and Priscilla because they're in Ephesus. And that's one of the reasons also I wanted to set it in Ephesus so we could encounter Priscilla. And my character knows how these, these more formalized group meals tend to operate in terms of who gets to sit where more important people sit, you know, closer to the, the head and where the host is. And she knows she's not significant socially. So she's going to be, 
farther away, perhaps even in the the second room because they're in a two room space. But she enters into this community in a really hesitant way and is surprised when someone who is clearly really wealthy and of high status wants to talk with her and wants to sit next to her. She basically thinks this doesn't, what is happening here? This doesn't make any sense. And then when this high status person introduces Anthea, my main character, to her slaves, when Anthea realizes that is happening, that's also confusing because they're gathered for a meal and the social norms are being upset and disturbed in ways that are confusing, but also very compelling. Anthea is moved by this. So the ways in which different people help to serve the meal is interesting because it's not just the slaves doing the serving. Um, but some, but there, it, there's an intentional mixing going on in terms of who's participating and who's helping. And the the example of that, it, Anthea is looking for an explanation, and she's given the explanation that, like in Jesus' community, these are the kinds of realities that we we attempt to live out the, in the way that we take care of each other and how we value each other. And by the way, you might accuse me of overly idealizing that scene. I've had a few conversations with people who have. And my heart in that scene is is to be able to to say, well, okay, perhaps, I mean, it wouldn't have worked this way in every early Jesus community, but I have to believe that there are some early followers of Jesus, especially ones who knew Paul, got to actually hang out with Paul and do community with Paul, who would understand the significance of him saying things like, you know, there is no slave nor free. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And then in conversation with Paul and even in their own sort of developing imagination, Christian imagination, to, to envision what that might look like for them, what that might compel them to do, how they might need to respond differently, how they might need to to include slaves in ways that perhaps they hadn't before, and perhaps even sometimes free slaves. But even if they hadn't realized that as a real option yet, because culturally that didn't make a lot of sense, they they might still realize, hey, this this is going to affect how how slaves are incorporated into this Jesus group. So what might that require of us? I have to believe that there were some early followers of Jesus who knew, who sensed deeply and felt compelled to live in ways that were different. So, Haters going to hate, Holly. Yes. You do. <laughs> you bring your vision to life. <laughs> it is tough in this genre. It is really tough to show that you're aware of other options, other academic options. So some of the critiques I've gotten are in that vein, you know, oh, there are other ways to think about this. And I've always said, yes, there are. That's true. I just, I couldn't highlight them all. And I can't wait to read your novel that brings (laughs) your point of view to creative life. (laughs) Yes. Well, that kind of brings up, though, that this, what's fun about this genre, right? That you have to take, you guys, you have taken your vast knowledge and you've said, okay, now, how am I going to make this live out on a stage, which requires decisions? And when we teach about like how the gospels were written, we often say, you know, there's a lot of things. Well, even John says, there's a lot else that I could have said, but I've told you this for this reason, right? So you both had reasons why you chose certain things. Holly, you've just mentioned one, you know, that you believed that this would be a way to show the teaching of Paul that was perhaps idealized. Yeah, we didn't maybe reach it all the time, but but it's there in the text and I can show it in a story so people can see it. Maybe there are other times, Holly, in your uh, in your novel where that where you were doing that. And David, also, I want to throw that to you. Were there places where you thought, yeah, you know, this wouldn't be every time, but there had to have been some times when they did it right like this. In in my story, it comes out more in the 
uh, scenes of worship at, at which I forgot to serve food. <laughs> but there's, there's a, morning, a morning ritual that happens in the house of our hero with his wife and natural children and slaves. And throughout that day, he treats his slaves completely differently. Uh, they, they are brothers and sisters. Uh, from morning to night that day, there, there's also a, a, an evening gathering of a larger Christian community in their house, um, uh, leading up to, but not including, uh, dinner. <laughs> I'm uh, sorry, this is really, no, no, I, it's, I, it's not it's a fine. critique about the meals. <laughs> no, no uh, a lot of meals are served in another scene uh, downtown. Um, and, and thinking about what Holly was saying about you know, the vision of the New Testament, whether or not it was consistently embodied, it's there's still value in showing how it might have been embodied so that we might still think about how to embody it in, in our setting, because we're still striving to find a way to make uh, Paul's declarations of, of uh, the falling away of these dichotomies and their, and their, uh, uh, unequal valuations of people, how to get past that in Christian community. So having these these spurs to think so, haters notwithstanding, are important. I mean, that's, a pur- that's one purpose of, of fiction, to help us think uh, differently and more creatively about our nonfiction existence. Do you have a similar story, David, of someone saying to you, writing to you, or in one of your classes saying, well, but you know, it could have been done this way, or... Of course, of course. Uh, not so much in my classes, <laughs> because, you know, there's a little bit more fear factor. But, <laughs> but, and that's to be expected, because none of us, you know, can reconstruct an ancient society completely right. Uh, and there's always going to be points where, yes, it could have gone one of two ways, and I chose this one. Because in a book of fiction, there are no footnotes saying, we could have had the hero do this instead. Oh, I was just going to say, I had another person, an academic, tell me that some of the scenes where my character and her husband are interacting, and the husband is not very kind, he's abusive even, that she didn't appreciate those. She felt as if I overplayed that. And in response, another academic that I was with at the time, because we were having a conversation, he said, so a woman said this to me, she didn't like those scenes overplayed. And then the man said, oh, I have so appreciated those. He said they were so powerful for me. And they really highlighted then the difference that Anthea, the main character, sees in a a friend's marriage once the friends have committed to Jesus and how differently the husband then treats the wife, including being faithful to her sexually, which he hadn't been before. So the, the, the contrast between what was culturally more normal and then how someone might live differently in their marriage a man who would have more power, more social power, um, he might live differently and treat his wife differently after committing to Jesus. Um, that's what I was trying to illustrate. And this one friend, ma- male academic friend of mine seemed to get that. But the woman was the one who wasn't very happy with the portrayals of abuse, which I found interesting. Well, that That is very interesting. As I uh, read, the, I mean, they're poignant and almost maybe painful. I mean, you feel, you, you write so well, you're, you know, I'm, I felt like I was right there on the scene uh, each time. Uh, so you invited us into this world, and it's not always a happy, pleasant world. I guess I would say for both of you, you really highlighted the struggles that 
that people face at that time. But then on top of that, this new message of the gospel, how that creates maybe some resolutions of things, but also some other real problems. Can you think of in, in your stories a place where, and maybe we've touched on them a little bit, how the gospel helps, but then a place where the gospel complicates their life? If I could just follow up first on what Holly was talking about, and maybe her one critic, the ancient world was a much more physical and violent world than we know. Um, violence was a way of life in households. It was it was a way of establishing dominance, and especially, yes, in in the unequal relationship of of husband as pater familias and wife, but also in the relationship of both of them to their slaves and just out in out and about in the in the streets uh those of higher status were free to abuse physically those of lower status and yeah yeah and we didn't call it that or they did not call it domestic violence it was just normal today we call it domestic violence but sadly e- even uh, in our towns, uh, this this runs um, sometimes under the the radar, uh, but it's there. I forget well, what was the question. Po- yes. <laughs> on a more positive note, <laughs> or not? Where does the gospel complicate lives? In my story, the gospel is just—it's all about its complications because. I'm a glasses half empty guy. <laughs> so, but but I share that with John, the seer. Uh, so it's all about the learning uh, the cost of witness and the cost of allegiance and the value of of paying that cost. The value of allegiance at the same time uh, that if if Jesus is truly to be Lord, then he has to be visibly Lord in a way that. That has me say, Caesar isn't so much. Uh, or in the commercial world as well, that you know, I begin to restrict my decisions and my associations because allegiance to Jesus is more valuable than economic gain, even more valuable than economic uh, um, sustainability for some of our characters. Uh, he is truly worth, and 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 what he promises and what he gives is worth the sacrifice. And David, you know, you've written an awful lot on honor and on kinship. Um, that plays a huge role in your novel. Um, and while we might not have in the United States an honor culture in quite the same way as they did in the ancient world, how? How does that honor piece play out then and now, do you think, in the Christian community? Well, then, I mean, and yeah, honor is a theme that infects all of my work. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, um, how do I know that my life is valuable? How do I experience myself as, as a valued person? Uh, and the Christian community in Ephesus toward the end of the century is struggling with how to affirm one another's value in the sight of the one whose evaluation will matter forever. Uh, in the midst of, of a culture of, of people who will like our hero's uh, 
antagonist seek to disgrace, uh, seek to demean uh, those who adhere to this cult and, and for some reason refuse to give the gods the piety that is their due, the, the indignation. In fact, the religious commitment of the pagan characters is also important to note. Um, they just they have as deep a religious commitment as as our hero it's just we would say misguided yeah and you spend a lot of time on religious festivals there's a sidebar on musical instruments and i know you're a, a fantastic pianist so i don't know if that uh, and musician otherwise um is that part part of your own interest in music draw you to kind of look at the religious festivals or emphasize it in in that way cuz it, it's a beautiful part of your novel well, thanks. It's also the slowest, I'm told. <laughs> oh, what a stately religious profession of procession, yawn. Uh, worship is really interesting to me. And, and it was an opportunity to try to get into uh, the recreation of Greco-Roman religious practice as fully as possible uh, on the assumption that it was compelling for a good number of its participants the way a well-constructed worship service is for us. And music, of course, is part of that, but it was admittedly tangential. Plus, I was, I was a little short on my quota of sidebars, so I had to come up with one. Plus, our ideas of music are so different from what they were in the first century. We don't know what an aulos would sound like. We translated flute, but that's wrong. It's not an oboe, it's something right in between. So we gotta think about what, what would be the sounds of festivity and the sounds of, of religious uh, 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 ceremony uh, in this very different world? Yes, and I think of the smells also. Some of it may be incense and some of it may body odor. You know, I mean, I just, you know, it's- Need there's more a incense. Whole... <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, Holly, how about you? How, how did the gospel complicate things, do you feel, for your characters? Well, I tell my New Testament students often at Westmont that when they're in class with me, I hope they catch a glimpse of the beauty of the New Testament and also of the challenge of the New Testament, both, not just one or the other. And in terms of the challenge piece for Anthea, I mean, she is clearly in a socially uh, more precarious place. She's free, but so not a slave, in other words. She's free, but definitely on the lower end of what we might call the status ladder, which includes socioeconomic kinds of uh, implications. She's also a woman and not a man. So she's worried for good reason about what it will mean in term with her with her marriage and her relationship with kin and their, in, their kind of intimate community group. If she transfers her loyalty to Jesus, that could actually be physically threatening to her and socially threatening, but definitely the physical piece is something that's at the front of her mind. And then because her husband is, in, is a fisherman and, and involved in this fish fishing guild of fishermen and fishmongers, fish sellers, and that guild is connected to various gods and they have a patron god, if, if it becomes publicly known that she has joined a different cult, basically, in, to worship a different god, one named Jesus, that might threaten her husband's standing within that group and then their family's connection to that, that group, which is, I mean, that this is about trade. This is about economic survival because that's so, so deeply connected to ancient notions of honor. So this is, this is a decision for her that she is very well aware will affect all kinds of other aspects of 
life that is not just personal, but in terms of community, community aspects. And that worries her, that concerns her, which I think it should. I mean, it's, it's, it's valid for her to be aware of and concerned about those pieces. You know, just for the sake of some of our listeners who might not be aware, uh, the problem with Jesus is not Jesus, it's his exclusivity. So, you know, if, if Jesus had been content to be worshipped, if the God of Israel had been content to be worshipped alongside all the other gods that have been embraced by the peoples around the Mediterranean, there would have been no problem for Jews or Christians throughout the empire. It's this exclusive allegiance that makes of them atheists in the eyes of everyone. So, so on the one hand, deciding for Jesus is kind of neutral. Deciding against all the other gods out there, that's major. Yes. Yes. In my book, I use the language often of transferring loyalty. That's what she would see herself as doing, as giving her loyalty to Jesus and away then from these other gods or goddesses. So this this loyalty now rests exclusively with Jesus. She knows that that's the call, that that's the invitation, but she's weighing it because she knows it will cost her. And was that uh, the maybe the central hope that you had readers take away as they finished your novels was the exclusive, the choice, the choice of following Jesus and what it would mean for your main characters? Yes, for me it was. I think my final line in the book is something like, what will it cost her? As a question, if she if she actually does decide to, to be a Jesus person exclusively. And then I wanted my readers to think, oh, what would I do? <laughs> What would it what will it cost me if I actually lived exclusively for Jesus? That's of course a major theme of, of my story as well. But to be honest, one of the things that I'd really hoped readers would take away from it would be a greater appreciation of the complexity of first century life. And and especially, perverse as this may sound, a greater appreciation for the other voices. Uh, that um, that we just dismiss because we read, say, Revelation with John, but to appreciate just how much social pressure there was to drive a Nicolaitan gospel, to to urge some prophetess whose name was assuredly not actually Jezebel, <laughs> to to find a way for Christianity to be compatible, not because we want to go that route ourselves, but that we'll, we'll really only understand the cost of loyalty and the cost of making the decision uh, to show Jesus the allegiance and exclusive witness that he des deserves if we understand just how much was at stake. Um, I thought you brought that out well, David, at least for me, because I really, I was reading through thinking, oh boy, this could be written about my life in, you know, sh the city of Chicago today, that pressure, the, the pressures might be different, but they're also just kind of the same of pulling into our gods of materialism, our seeking for honor, and however that, you know, happens on social media or whatever, uh, publishing. Not being canceled. Mm -hmm. We have yes, a new tool yes. for shaming that is more like the first century yes. than anything in the repertoire of my 54 years on this planet. Yes, <laughs> yes that's so true. And, and you bring that, uh, you, by putting it in a story form, uh, it invites, it certainly invited me to step in and, and 
be self-reflective on, yeah, how am I choosing things? And, and where's my courage <laughs> at times? Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for talking about your novels, but of course, now you're on to some other things. And I'd, I'd be interested to know if the writing these novels have shaped your, your next couple of, um, academic projects. I'll start with you, Holly. You can tell us what you're doing. And, and maybe how writing this novel helped or framed up some new questions for you. Mm-hmm. It definitely did, because there's so much interaction with other gods or goddesses, spiritual forces. It heightened an interest I've had. I, I'm Pentecostal, so an interest I've had that's been more informal in my life, which is basically demons, exorcism, oppression, you know, spiritual oppression, that kind of thing. So I've worked a bit on that and I'm continuing to research that, especially in terms of how some Second Temple Jewish texts outside of the Bible, um, how they are understanding those realities in their own time. And then I'm also working on a commentary series I'm co-editing with Craig Keener at Asbury Seminary, a New Testament commentary series that's written by and for Pentecostals and Charismatics. So the hope is to speak in ways that are meaningful to uh, Craig. Craig's Pentecostal too, so to speak in ways that are meaningful about the text to uh, basically our home audiences and hopefully help them understand the text better and find new sources of inspiration and power. Yeah, through scholarship. A, yeah, Word and Spirit is that Word, it? Word and Spirit Baker Wonderful. Academic is publishing it. Oh, great. And you're doing Colossians and Philemon? Yes, I am. Wonderful. Which has been oh, so fun. <laughs> yes, yes. We'll look forward to to that. And uh, David, how is, has writing this novel maybe shaped your new projects? Well, of course. Just the amount of extra work that it calls for just digging through inscriptions. I mean, not literally, obviously, <laughs> but studying inscriptions. <laughs> Let real archaeologists do the work, profit from their labors, that's my philosophy, <laughs> and, and and what have you, can't help but uh, give those of us who have written for the series as a whole a much uh, broader understanding of the day-to-day realities uh, of, of the world that we study. So, yeah, I expect that it will continue to leaven other works that I do. And I'm committed to live in Revelation for a good while. I'm writing a commentary for the NICNT, which uh, which my editors think will be done in 2024. So, okay, okay. So they you can uh, they parse hope that out at your <laughs> <laughs> So I'll be living in in Ephesus and its surrounding cities for a few years to come. Uh, well, we'll look forward to uh, should the Lord tarry. We'll look forward to reading that, your commentary as it comes out. That'll, that'll be fabulous. Well, I so appreciate, uh, you guys spending a little bit of time talking about your novels. I cannot recommend them highly enough. They just bring this world of the New Testament to life in a way that is compelling. When I've used them in my classes, students have raved about them. It's just a way to enter into the world that we all have studied for a long time, but but it brings it to life in, uh, uh, yeah, in a personal, compelling way. So thank you uh, to David De Silva and Holly Beers for spending some time with us here uh, on this podcast. You've been listening to On Script's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, 
please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging.